Let me invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Revelation chapter uh, 16. Revelation chapter 16, verses 2 through 9 will be our passage this morning. As you're turning, I want to announce to the men that starting on uh, Wednesday, September 15th, we're going to begin a new uh, study, uh, Bible study in the book of Philippians, gentlemen, here on Wednesday evenings. Uh, so I want to invite you to attend that. Uh, no homework involved in this study, so uh, nothing to keep you away. No amount of preparation necessary, so open invitation to all of you men. That's Wednesday, September 15th. We continue our study in the seven bowls. Uh, we uh, looked at an introduction uh, to this to the bowls last week in verse 1, and now we want to continue and study the bowls themselves. If you don't know what a bowl is, we'll explain it uh, momentarily. But our passage is uh, 16, 2 through 9. I'll include verse 1 today so you can uh, be appraised of what we studied last week. Revelation 16, verses 1 through 9. Hear the word of the Lord. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and, and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce seed, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. This is the word of the Lord. It's a rather difficult uh, section. Let's pray for help as we look into it this morning. Father, we need, uh, we need your spirit to give us wisdom and understanding as we look into this a mysterious passage of your word, this difficult passage. We pray that you would be gracious and help us understand what John is telling us, what you are telling us through the Apostle John. So do please uh, quicken us, open our eyes, give us understanding that we may grasp what you are doing on earth at this time. I ask, Lord, you would quicken me in particular. Strengthen me with your spirit. Give me a clear mind, clear speech. Uh, help me to make your word clear uh, to your bride assembled here this morning. Uh, Lord God, we entrust ourselves into your hand. Uh, do strengthen us as we feed on your word today. Jesus, we ask this in your precious name. Amen. Steamships used to travel the Great Lakes, uh, this region of the United States that you may or 
may not be familiar with. Uh, there was a, in particular, route uh, that uh, went from Detroit, Michigan, up through Lake Superior to Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, these were uh, leisurely cruises that took place in the warmer months of the year. Uh, the Harmonic was one of the vessels that made that trip. It's a very large ship, and if you've not been on the Great Lakes, they are quite great. They're very large, and ships like this have no trouble navigating those lakes. Uh, it belonged to the Canada Steamship Lines and set out from that Detroit to Duluth trip, uh, its first maiden voyage, April 27, 1927. Uh, the trip between Detroit and Duluth took seven days and was reported in the newspapers as delightfully cool and enjoyable, something we rarely say about uh, Georgia summers. On a later voyage, however, this very ship was tied to a dock to take on supplies when a gasoline explosion on shore set the steamer afire. In just a few minutes, the decks of the harmonic were a mass of flames. The crew of the harmonic worked quickly to control the fire and attempt to save the 250 uh, passengers aboard the vessel, some of whom were still in their cabins. It was a man on shore, however, who showed the greatest presence of mind he was the operator of a huge crane used to load, uh, load coal on the harmonic. And this operator inched his crane as close as possible to the burning ship, then ran his scoop up and over the bow of the harmonic and down on the deck. When the scoop was filled with passengers, he load them slowly to the dock. And in this rather unusual way, he rescued about 100 passengers from certain death. Certainly, they would have never forgotten a rescue of this nature. Believers in Christ, followers of the Lord Jesus, are waiting for a rescue that's much like this one. We are waiting to be scooped up, if you will. Snatched up would be a better term to use from 1 Thessalonians 4. Uh, snatched up at the return of Jesus Christ, at the appearing of of the glory and of our great God and Savior, uh, Jesus Christ. This will be the day of our final departure or our final exodus. Just as God delivered the Israelites from their enemies, so we will be delivered from ours finally and fully at the return of Christ. John describes this final exodus to us in the uh, early verses of the chapter right before this. And just as, just as God once delivered Israel from Egypt uh, by passing safely through the Red Sea to the other side, so God will finally deliver you and me. Uh, God will finally deliver believers, spiritual Israel, true Israel, through the Sea of Glass safely into his presence. If you have your Bible open, just glance up the page to chapter 15, verse 2, and look at that description uh, of our exodus. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sang and they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, in the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. 
And just as Moses and his sister Miriam led Israel to sing beside the Red Sea, so we see ourselves singing beside the sea of glass in the presence of God and in the presence of the Lamb. Now for Israel, you remember there were ten plagues that led up to their exodus. God sent ten plagues to judge the Egyptians for their worship of false gods and for their persecution of the Israelites. And so it is with believers. So it is with spiritual Israel, or true Israel. Christ sends seven plagues on the world of unbelievers who worship false gods and persecute his church. And these seven plagues are described to us in chapter 16 of the book of Revelation. Uh, through these uh, things that I've described as seven bowls. And it's through these seven bowls that God delivers his people from their enemies. Last Sunday I mentioned that there are three facets of these bold judgments, or, or aspects of these bold judgments. We studied one of those aspects last week, this first one, judgments uh, from God's throne. That's the first uh, facet uh, that we saw. Uh, last Sunday we saw the source of the bold judgments, uh, the subjects of the bold judgments, the symbolism and the scale of these, uh, uh, these judgments, their intensity. And this morning we want to pick up the second aspect of these seven bowls and see that these bold judgments are judgments on servants of the beast. Uh, they are judgments on those who worship and serve the beast. And this is what we'll see in verses 2 through 9 as we study the first four bowls. They are aimed specifically at those who've taken the mark of the beast and who worship the beast. Now, if you don't remember what the mark of the beast is, we'll explain that again in just a moment. The first bowl judgment that we come to is the plague of spiritual torment. The servants of the beast suffer the painful and ugly consequences of their sins. Let me pause for a minute here. There's a wide range of opinion on what the bold judgments are. And I mean a wide range of opinion. I'm going to continue using the, the hermeneutic, the way of interpretation that I've been using throughout the book of Revelation, and that's to see things as largely symbols. Many take these bold judgments very literally, and I'll show you that in, in just a moment. All that's to say, if you don't agree with me on what these bold judgments are, that's okay. I'm not quite sure what some of them are myself. There is a wide range of opinion amongst even Reformed scholars about what these are, and I'll show you that in just a moment as well. Uh, there are three things I want to point out to you about this first bold judgment, which, as I said, I believe is spiritual torment. Uh, first, in this bold judgment, we see uh, the judgment set in motion. We see the motion of the angel to set God's judgment in play. Look at verse 2 with me in your copy of the Bible. It says, so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. As I mentioned last Sunday, I want you to see the symbolic nature of this angel's action. There's, a, there's an actual angel involved, most definitely, but it's unlikely that he is actually pouring out a saucer of God's wrath from beyond the crystal sea in heaven. 
Remember that the bowls referred to throughout this chapter are more like shallow pans or saucers that resemble this uh, pie uh, tin. These were used in the temple, uh, the temple worship to carry incense. Uh, and so this angel, I want you to think, is not actually leaning over the edge of the glassy sea and pouring out a, a saucer full of God's wrath on the earth, uh, not, not most definitely that the wrath of God would not fit in one saucer. Uh, so there's a very symbolic element to this, this, uh, this angel pouring out God's wrath. What he is doing is he is putting God's judgment in motion on earth. He is causing these things to happen, setting it in motion in answer to God's command and in answer to the prayers of God's people. He activates God's judgment on the followers of the beast. He sets it in motion. The second thing I want you to see about this first bowl is the mark. This bowl or pan or saucer is poured out on those who bear the mark of the beast. Look again at verse 2. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. That identifies who are the recipients of this first bowl, who receives this judgment. It's all those who receive the mark of the beast. And that, my friend, is all unbelievers. Remember how we've been defining the beast in our study so far. Perhaps you don't remember, so let me mention it again. The beast we see to begin with in Revelation chapter 13. It's, he's referred to as the beast from the sea. Uh, it, there we defined it as uh, this beast symbolizes the persecuting power of Satan embodied in all the nations and governments of the world throughout history. That's William Hendrickson's definition. Uh, the beast is every form of worldly government which persecutes the church, taking various forms throughout the gospel era. It's really important in your understanding of the book of Revelation is to recall that these things are not one-time events. They repeat themselves between the time of Christ's first coming and the time of his second coming. And so the beast could take several forms. And, and I believe throughout history he has and has taken forms in this very day. For the readers of John, the beast would have been represented by the Roman government. Uh, and when I was growing up, the beast took the form of the Soviet Union under communism that did its utmost to suppress Christianity and persecute believers, communist China as well. More recently, the beast has taken the form of ISIS, uh, the Taliban, as we hear about things taking place in Afghanistan, and as we faithfully pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. More recently, it's taken uh, the form of the government in Myanmar as well as the church is being persecuted in that nation. It's not limited to these, however, not limited to foreign nations because we see beast-like characteristics emerge in our own government from time to time. So one scholar describes the beast as Rome or any other incarnation of concentrated human political, military, economic, cultural power that cherishes pretensions to divinity. 
So here again, the beast is anti-Christian governments that take a godlike posture as they persecute Christ's church. That's the beast, and that's who John is referring to as he refers to the beast here. What about the mark of the beast? Now, we've mentioned uh, in weeks past that, that the mark is not a literal mark on the forehead or right hand. This is a cherished notion among many Christians in the United States of America, and I'm sorry to disappoint you that um, it is not a, a microchip embedded in your forehead or anything on your hand that will be scanned uh, at the checkout line in the grocery store. It is not a literal mark on the forehead or right hand, but it's a reference to the thoughts and actions of those who are awed by the beast's power, those who worship the beast. Their thought life uh, takes on the form of the beast's thoughts. Those are those are um, encouraged by the second beast. We referred to him as the false prophet, the beast from the earth. And that's also in Revelation 13 and 14. This is how one man defines it. He says the mark symbolizes the world system's control of their minds and therefore of their actions. And just pause and think of the truth of this. We see in our culture how uh, the beast has captured the mindset of so many uh, of the people of the world. They think like the beast thinks. They then act like the beast thinks. For example, uh, I'm giving the beast a very broad definition here. The idea that sex outside of marriage is wrong. Who thinks that anymore? Uh, that... that uh, Sex outside of marriage is, is, is normal. It's been normalized by our culture, by the thinking of the world around us, except hopefully for those of us sitting in the room and other followers of the Lord Jesus. It, it represents this mark, symbolizes the world's control of their minds and therefore of their actions. I used... Uh, sexual permissiveness. It's just a, one example, but there are many things that fall into the category. And this, according to Revelation chapter 13, this mark, this mindset, this action, the actions of these people, this describes all of those without Christ. Listen to Revelation 13, verse 8. Well, that's not at all. Somehow, Nate, we've gotten into the lyrics of the songs. Well, hey, I've got Revelation 13, 8 right here. There's no reason to panic. I have the verse right before me. And listen to the breadth of those who worship the beast. And all who dwell on earth. All right, let me remind you again, that phrase, all who dwell on earth, is how John refers to unbelievers, the mass population of the world. Well, there it is right there, except it's not Romans. It's really Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Let me just clarify, it refers to the beast. And this verse tells us that all unbelievers worship the beast. So these are, these are the people on whom the first bowl is poured, those with the mark 
those with the mindset and actions of the beast's way of operating, as well as the false prophet. I want you then to see the third thing related to this first bowl. We've seen the motion of the angel setting this judgment in, in play. We've seen the mark of those who receive it. And finally, the misery, uh, the result of this bowl. Look at verse 2, and let's land right in the middle. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Again, many take this literally. They believe this refers to actual sores, or uh, ulcers could be a translation of the word as well. In fact, one scholar describes these as ulcers both inside and outside the body that come as a result of their diet. That's possible. But I believe we should continue interpreting the book of Revelation with the same, same principle we've been using throughout our study to see these things as primarily symbols. There's a good reason why these are probably not actual sores and ulcers, and, and I'll, I'll try to explain. First, if the mark of the beast is not an actual mark on the forehead or the right hand, Again, we're saying that refers to the way an unbeliever thinks and acts in the world. So if the mark of the beast is not an actual mark on the skin, it's unlikely that the sores are actual sores either. And again, we could go back to the angel. He's not holding a literal pan and pouring it over the edge of the glassy sea. He's down on earth uh, in setting God's judgment in place, setting it in motion. So, what do these painful sores refer to? Again, this is very broad, and you might think this is a pretty wimpy explanation, and, and that's fine. It seems that these sores represent some form of suffering which those who aren't Christians will have to endure. Some form of suffering which those who bear the mark of the beast, who think and act like the beast, that they will have to endure. And one scholar explains this. John is speaking in picture language, and so we do not need to expect literal sores and boils. Figuratively, they suffer marks on their bodies because they are marked. The ugly sores match the ugly and evil marks that identifies these people. And then someone else adds this. Uh, he describes the sores as head-to-toe torment. The hopelessness of heart that God inflicts on those who have trusted the beast as their savior and protector. These sores then seem to represent the painful and ugly consequences of their sin. The, the result of their devotion to the beast. The consequences of their beastly lifestyle. This is the misery that this judgment produces in the lives of those who bear the mark of the beast. Now, just hit the pause button and say, they don't have to bear the misery of the mark of the beast. Because even here, I believe that there are some who can turn to faith in Christ and escape his wrath. Those uh, who can turn from their sin, who God grants the gift of repentance, 
who God gives a new heart to so that they can uh, turn from their sin and their self-reliant thoughts and their love for the beast and his power uh, to rely on Christ's payment for sin and on that alone. These can be saved. But those who refuse to trust in Christ, the servants of the beast, suffer the painful and ugly consequences of their sins. This is not to take place in days ahead. This is taking place now. Uh, this form of God's judgment on those who worship the beast. That's the first bull that I believe represents spiritual torment. Now, these sores, because they bear the mark of the beast, they suffer the consequences of, of that mark and their sinful actions. The second uh, bull that we see I believe, is a reference to economic disaster. Uh, the plague of economic disaster. The servants of the beast suffer the financial consequences of their sin. Look at verse 3 in your copy of God's word. The third angel poured out, excuse me, the second angel, verse 3, poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Here, this is a direct reference to our scripture reading today in Exodus uh, chapter uh, 7, where God turned the waters of the Nile into blood. It's, it's also much like the second trumpet that we studied weeks ago uh, in chapter 8. What does this bold judgment on the sea describe? Let me mention a couple options to you. Uh, again, some take this exactly as it reads. Some believe that the sea is turned to blood, actual blood, like the blood of a corpse, and the food supply of the oceans is taken away from the human race. All life in the sea is destroyed. So one option is to take this in a very literal sense. Remember, though, that a strict literal interpretation like this has not been our approach throughout our study. There's another option is that the sea refers to humanity in general. Now, this is not as far-fetched as it sounds. Uh, many suggest that the sea referenced to here, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, is a reference to the mass of unbelieving nations, the sea of humanity, if you will. One scholar says the sea portrays not so much the Mediterranean Sea, which was the heart of, the Ro of Rome's far-flung empire, but the satanic spiritual realm from which opposition to God's reign arises. This is a description of the sea that goes all the way back into the Old Testament. David used the sea in this way several times to refer to the nations around him. The oceans have lifted up their waves, uh, is uh, what he says in, uh, well, it escapes me what psalm it's from. Uh, David uses this metaphor, if you will, the beast of the sea uh, in, in Revelation 13 rises from the sea. That is the mass of nations. And so to support this idea, some people uh, refer to the end of the book, Revelation 21, uh, which says, Then I saw a new heaven, a new earth for the first time, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Uh, referring to uh, unbelieving nations. There will be no unbelievers in the new heaven and new earth. This is the second option. 
suffering and death on many of the beast's followers. That's a viable option. That's a definite possibility. There's a third that I think, in my opinion, is a little bit better, and that is the third option refers to financial catastrophe. Uh, we've heard already the Mediterranean Sea, uh, it was described as the heart of Rome's far-flung empire. Uh, people of the ancient world were dependent on the Mediterranean Sea for their transportation, their food. The sea was a source of wealth. It was a source of comfort. It was a source of prosperity for a great many people. Many in the ancient world came to rely on the sea for their comfort and stability, just as Egypt relied on the Nile for its comfort and wealth and stability. It's this aspect of the sea comfort and the prosperity it produced that God removes in the second bowl. In fact, one uh, man comments, the sea being turned to blood in 16.3 is figurative at least in part for the demise of the ungodly world's economic life support system. I think what it, it would have meant in John's day for his readers that the Mediterranean Sea in particular would have been turned to blood. Livelihood for many would cease. Another Bible scholar says, as people came to depend on materialism and comfort while turning away from God, so God the Creator will take away that comfort and the source of that materialism, for the Creator God is able to do this at His will. I think this is a definite possibility. This is the, this is the option I favor. Uh, so if we go with that third option, that it's financial disaster, what would that look like in the modern world? I mean, how would that actually play out? It might represent a dive in the stock market. Uh, people seeing that their retirement funds... Uh, Slip away would make a great many anxious, would unsettle them, disturb their comfort. Maybe this bowl would take the form of a gas shortage or a food supply. Uh, these possibilities or some other kind of financial downturn in our nation, we've seen this even connected to the COVID virus. Any of them would be, would be unsettling. But I believe... That is, in my opinion, I, I think this plague represents economic disaster on those who bear the mark of the beast and worship his image. The servants of the beast suffer the financial consequences of their sin. This is the second bowl. The third bowl, yet another judgment aimed at the followers of the beast. And I believe the, the third bowl it refers to divine revenge. God exacting justice on the servants of the beast. Uh, there are three things I'd like to point out here. I'm going to put them on another slide so you can see them better. Uh, the first thing I want you to see about this divine revenge is the drink that's given to unbelievers. Their drink, having put Christians to death, God in turn gives them death to drink. Look at verse 4 with me and follow along carefully, please. It says, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. Here we read that the fresh water supply will be turned to blood. Very Another very graphic image. 
What, is, what does this describe to us? Well, verses 5 and 6 explain it, actually. Verse 5 goes on to say, And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they, those who worship the beast, that is, have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. To start with, drinking blood here is not a reference to actually drinking blood. We see this clearly. Just glance across the page in your Bible to the next chapter. Look ahead to chapter 17 in verse 5. It describes Babylon the Great, the great city, and look at what it says here. It helps us understand what it means when it says you've given them blood to drink. Verse 5, And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the great mother of prostitutes, and of the earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. Babylon the great city was not literally drinking the blood of the believers. She was killing them. She was putting the followers of Christ to death. And so being drunk with their blood means that, that she was killing many believers. Many were martyred for Christ because of Babylon the Great. Take that idea back to verse 6, and that's what the servants of the beast had also done. They'd also put God's people to death. Verse 6 says, For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets. And if we borrow the words from chapter 17 back here, it said they, it, we, we, could, we could have it say, for they have drunk the blood of the saints and prophets. And so God's judgment on unbelievers for putting his people to death is, is to give them blood to drink, their own blood to drink. God in turn will put the servants of the beast to death just as they have put believers to death. This is what God promises in the Old Testament, Isaiah 49, 26 says, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of, of Jacob. The Lord, using symbolic language, says they have put you to death. I will put them to death in return. And the phrase he uses to explain that is, they will be drunk with their own blood. I think that's what John is describing to us in the third bowl, because the servants of the beast have put God's people to death. Some of the things we've heard coming from Afghanistan and Myanmar, this is what it's referring to. He will exact his revenge on them by putting them to death or symbolically speaking, make them drunk on their own blood. A little graphic, I'm, I'm sorry, but it's what Scripture says. We see the drink of unbelievers here to begin with in this divine revenge. The second thing we see is perfect justice. God, in absolute fairness, makes the punishment fit the crime. Oh, please, please hear this. We're reading this and we're thinking, oh, this is so gross. Uh, this is so harsh. This is so unfair.
And if we think that, we come smack up against verse 5. Look back to verse 5. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. That statement eliminates any idea of unfairness. Any idea that God is acting harshly. That, that he's acting out of fit of passion. He is acting passionately. I will give you that. But it is no fit. Because this angel declares it as perfectly fair. Uh, the phrase, I want you to look at your text with me, and, and notice that phrase, just are you, oh, holy one. This is not the typical word for holy that the New Testament uses, agios. Uh, this is the word asios, and this zeroes in on God's spectacular moral purity. There's not a flaw in him. And therefore, there, there cannot be unfairness in him as he distributes these judgments. We must banish all thoughts that God's being too extreme. He's acting out of his holiness, as we saw last Sunday. There is no flaw in him. There is no prejudice. There is no overreaction in him. He cannot miscarry justice. Because he is holy, every one of these bold judgments is completely fair. The punishment fits the crime to a T. Boy. I thought God was a God of love. I mean, it says it in 1 John, Pastor Rob, God is love. Well, how do I see the love of God? Look around, friend. Look around right now at the world motoring on, cars humming across every interstate in the world, people going about their business, some people are at Target right now picking up their groceries for the day or for the week. There are probably people in, in uh, Guatemala perhaps doing the same thing. Every country you can dream of, there, there are people going about their business on this Sunday morning or whatever day it is in that part of the world, India, it's eight hours ahead, Sunday evening. They're sitting down, relaxing with their friends with no thought of God whatsoever. Where, where is God's love towards these people who completely ignore him? He is withholding and delaying his judgment so that they can turn and repent. 
he is withholding his wrath even now upon those people so that they can turn and find Christ. This great, uh, this great holding of breath, this <gasps> is their opportunity to turn from their idol worship of materialism and prosperity to trust in the atoning death of Jesus Christ. But one day, that great withholding of breath will be exhaled. And time will be up. And this is what we're reading about. God has been delaying his justice. Holding back what their sins deserve. Allowing them to flee to Christ while there's still time. But now the justice of God is being acted on, set in motion, put in play. And every one of these judgments that he pours out is completely fair. Because there is no imperfection in God. He is holy. This, his perfect justice, is why you, must, you and I must not ever take our own revenge. But leave it to God. You, you and I cannot be counted on to make the punishment fit the crime. Because you and I always want to dish out more punishment than is necessary. What do you want to do to the guy who cuts you off in traffic? You want to blow his car up. <laughs> Am I wrong? We always want to do more punishment than is necessary. And this is why the Word of God tells us, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Do you imagine that your definition of vengeance could ever match the definition of vengeance of a holy God? Can you? Whatever you dream of, missile launchers, Machine guns mounted on the hood of your car. I don't care what it is. But in all seriousness, our vengeance would never match the vengeance of a holy God. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God. Your wrath can't hold a candle to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. This is the perfect justice of God. The second thing we see uh, in this uh, divine revenge, this third bowl. And there is one more aspect of this divine revenge, this third bowl I want you to see, and that is answered prayer. God pours out this divine justice on the beast's servants in answer to the prayers of his people. This is not the first time we've seen this. We've seen this now three or four times. Look at verse 7 with me. And I heard the altar saying, again, uh, symbolic, of course. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. What does it mean the altar is saying? This is a reference back to one of the seal judgments, the fifth seal. Uh, let me read it to you and, and remind you. When he opened the fifth seal, he being the Lamb, Jesus, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, that's the altar of incense, 
the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Uh, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And so here we see in chapter 16, in verse 7, yes, Lord, they're satisfied now because they've seen God, they've waited, and God has carried out His justice. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, the Pantocrator, the ruler of the, 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 the known universe, true and just are your judgments. This bowl comes in answer to prayer. Uh, the prayers of God's people, and by that I mean you and I, are a key element in his return, in the display of his revenge. God pours out this perfect justice in answer to his people's prayers. So this is the third bowl that we've seen, and I believe it demonstrates divine revenge. So let's hurry on to the fourth bowl now, which is also aimed at those who worship the beast. And what do we see in the first bowl, in the fourth bowl rather? I believe that we see the servants of the beast suffer the plague of the unfiltered, uh, the unfiltered wrath of God. That is his unfiltered righteous anger. Look at verse 8 in your Bible. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Fire in the Old Testament scriptures. Again, John is, is versed in the Old Testament. He's, he's been using references to the Exodus throughout this. Uh, he is drawing from prophets here and there. And here again, he is drawing from uh, prophets because Old Testament scriptures describe uh, the heat of God's wrath in terms of fire. For example, this passage in Jeremiah 7.20, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place upon man and beast, upon the trees of the field and the fruit of the ground. It will burn and not be quenched. Similar language used in Ezekiel 22. Again, not a passage you and I frequent very often, but John was very conversant in the book of Ezekiel. It says, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst of it as silver is melted in a furnace. So, and so you shall be melted in the midst of it, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have poured out my wrath upon you. Believers are protected from this heat. Shaded by God's presence, we read this, and we read this back in chapter 7, they shall hunger no more, neither, neither thirst any more, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. So one, one uh, man comments, commenting, uh, on this scorching heat, he says, scorching sunlight without shade spells certain death, and so it provides an apt picture of the relief that God previously provided, even the wicked, in his common grace. 
In the end, he will withdraw even this expression of his undeserved kindness. Unbelievers, those who follow the beast, will experience the unfiltered wrath of God. It is the equivalent of walking outside, you with fair skin, without a sun hat, without sunglasses, without sunscreen. My wife can spend 20 minutes outside and be burned it is unfiltered by anything. God removes his, his common grace, his gracious with, with, withholding of his, his wrath, and they receive it in an unfiltered measure. You would think that this would do something. What effect does this have? Look at verse 9 in your text. They, the servants of the beast, were scorched by the fierce heat, and they, they, they repented and believed. And they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. It's not that they didn't understand where the plagues came from. It's just clearly they understand where the plagues came from. They cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Instead of turning to Christ to rely on His payment for sin on the cross, they blaspheme the name of God. They speak evil of God. And tortured by this unfiltered and unrelenting wrath, these servants of the beast become hardened and they refuse to repent. Look at the, the very last phrase in verse 9. They did not repent and give him glory. Someone observing the Coast Guard once gave an account of this rescue. The, the helicopter settled on its pad like a mighty bird returning from an exhausting flight. Though noisy, the landing was beautiful. The giant helicopter weighing approximately 16,000 pounds, carrying 4,000 additional pounds of fuel, had safely borne her crew back from a hazardous attempted rescue mission at sea. For three hours, six courageous and highly skilled men had penetrated the fog searching for a fishing vessel. Its captain had con contacted the Coast Guard station at St. Petersburg, Florida, reporting that a member of his crew had sustained a broken leg and needed medical attention. Back on the ground, occupants of the aircraft having landed, gracefully and carefully disembarked, there were brief comments and admiring gestures between the air and ground crews. The last man to leave the craft was the flight surgeon, dressed in his fire-resistant gear, topped off with an extraordinary white helmet. And at the first opportunity, I asked him, how did it go? Not too well, he replied. The fog was too dense. they would not allow us to approach 
let alone make a rescue. They would not allow us to approach, let alone make a rescue. I think it's a great illustration of what takes place in this fourth bowl judgment. The servants of the beast are in desperate need of rescue from the unfiltered wrath of God. But in the words of the flight sermon, flight surgeon, they don't allow us to approach, let alone make a rescue. Stay away. Stay away. So Dr. Joel Beakey comments, the bowls represent God's judgment. It may be inoperable cancer, a sudden heart attack, an exploding plane, famine brought on by drought, wars and rumors of war, a tsunami, a hurricane, or civil upheaval. God uses such disasters to reveal his wrath against those who will not repent. The beast's servants desperately need shelter from the heat of God's wrath through the atoning death of Jesus, but they will not allow us to approach, let alone make a rescue. This is the contents of the fourth bowl, the unfiltered wrath of God. Is that your state today? Are you in verse 9? Do you wonder why things are happening to you? Have you considered that God could possibly be trying to arouse your attention? That that suffering you experience is the helicopter and the, the wind from the blades ruffling your life? Christ can save you this morning. He wants to rescue you from his wrath. The helicopter is hovering. The lifeline of Christ's free forgiveness from sin is dangling above your head. And all that's required is that you let go of your boat. That you turn your back on whatever sin or whatever self-righteousness is in your life and grab the lifeline of God's grace through Christ. Well, how does God deliver his people? While we await the certain and glorious return of Jesus Christ, while we wait to be scooped up or snatched up 
to meet Christ in the air. How does God deliver us from our enemies? How is God delivering us from our enemies? He delivers us through means of these seven plagues or seven bold judgments. Uh, and specifically today, he delivers us through these four judgments on the beast's servants. Uh, these four that are aimed at those who bear the mark of the beast. And again, they are spiritual torment, economic disaster, divine revenge, and unfiltered wrath. Let me pray as we conclude. We thank you, Christ Jesus, for your free gift of salvation. And thank you, Father, for how you have poured out your love through Christ and how you have drawn us to saving faith in Jesus, your Son, by creating a new heart of belief in us so that we could turn from our sins and trust in Jesus, your Son. Thank you, Father. Father, 